This is the John Oakley Show podcast. John Carpe is joining us on the line, the president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. John, how are you doing? Good afternoon. I'm doing well. How are you, John? Very good. I'm sure you've addressed this particular case that I've just cited, have you? The Justice Center represented five of the women against whom uh, Jessica, formerly Jonathan Yaniv, filed uh, human rights complaints before the BC Human Rights Tribunal. So there were three hearings for three different women, uh, and a decision is expected by October. Right. And in some cases, I mean, are you doing this pro bono? I mean, because I'm understanding that some of the women have uh, already rung up thousands of dollars in legal uh, defense bills. There is, yes, the, the Justice Center is representing these these women uh, w- without charge, and we're able to do that because we rely on voluntary donations, and so we have thousands of Canadians across the country that are sending in donations, and so we have a team of lawyers, and then when we uh, defend people, uh, we we do so with without charging. There was one of the 14 women did hire uh, a lawyer and uh, is probably out of pocket thousands of dollars, although we don't know. I mean, possibly uh, he represented her without charge. I, I have no idea. But typically in, in human rights cases, uh, the choice that a business faces is basically boils down to, you know, spend $50,000, $40,000, $30,000 on legal bills or just write a check for five or 10000 to the complainant. And it makes more sense financially just to, uh, just to cave in to, uh, to the complaint. Well, are you suggesting this might be a shakedown? Well, it's, it sometimes is. Um, in, in regular courts, if you sue somebody and lose, you will be on the hook for a substantial portion of the defendant's legal bills, and vice versa. If you're a defendant in a court action and you lose, you're going to have to pay a big portion of the plaintiff's, successful plaintiff's legal costs. And and that's good as a deterrent, because in a real court, you would never, uh, unless you're really wealthy and have money to burn, you're not going to proceed with a trivial or a frivolous uh, complaint, because there are real costs consequences. But in a human rights tribunal, uh, you can file whatever complaint you want and force the other side into a situation where they have to uh, pay you settlement or defend themselves and spend a lot more money. Well, yeah, mentioning frivolous and vexatious, I'm kind of curious, how do you account for the BC Human Rights Tribunal even proceeding with this case? It's it's disappointing that uh, in a preliminary ruling that came out May 30th, the Human Rights Tribunal actually said that trans women have a right to gender-affirming care, such as waxing. And so the tribunal takes this very, very, very seriously. That's not to say that Yaniv is going to win uh, at, at the end of the day, but our position in representing these women is that no woman should be compelled by law to wax male genitalia. And Yaniv has has admitted publicly that Yaniv has male genitalia. He was, Yaniv was even cross-examined on that uh, at, at one of the hearings and has admitted to that. And, you know, the, he, Yaniv claims that uh, this is a human right to be free from discrimination 
based on gender identity and gender expression. However, the women are not being asked to wax a gender identity. The women are being asked to wax male genitalia, and they didn't feel comfortable with that at all. Well, how do you perceive this? That I, I mean, it's being uh, couched as a human right, or is this a manufactured or a faux right? Well, on the on the plain reading of the BC Human Rights Act, or or the Ontario one, the the, the federal one, uh, any Human Rights Act that says that you cannot discriminate on the basis of gender identity and gender expression, the logical next step is for uh, trans identifying person for a, a trans woman with male genitalia to say, well, you can't discriminate on the basis of my gender identity and gender expression, because what that really means is you have to treat that person uh, according to, not not according to the, the, the biological gender, but according to what they identify with. So it's, uh, it's, it's quite troubling where we've arrived at now in 2019 with with human rights legislation that originally was supposed to be a tool against uh, racism and sexism and other forms of bigotry. Well, I guess this is not bigotry. These women are not even trained or qualified or competent to provide the service. Uh, the Justice Centre put forward an expert witness who runs a waxing salon for men because uh, there are men who want this uh, Brazilian bikini wax. And uh, this woman testified that it's a different procedure, requires specialized training, requires different kind of wax. And so the 14 women against whom Yaniv complained were not even competent to provide the service. Well, do we have a case of conflicting rights, as it were? In other words, there's an intrusion on these women's rights, uh, a right to and fill in the blank? My, my take on it is every, everybody has a right to express themselves as they wish. And so, and that could mean, you know, men expressing themselves as women or women expressing themselves as men. That's one thing. But when other people are forced by law to agree with the ideas in your mind, that's not the free society. That's not freedom. Nobody should have a right to compel other people to agree with them. And that would be across the board. I mean, it's one thing somebody, uh, you know, somebody has an idea that a particular religion is the right one or the best one. Okay, fine. That's freedom of expression. But if other people are forced to go along with that and say, yes, yeah, that is the, that is the true religion. Well, then you're violating everybody else's rights. It's become uh, fascinating. We're living in interesting times, as the old Chinese proverb would have it. John Carpe is with us, president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I want to run another case by you, just uh, out of curiosity. Uh, I discussed this uh, earlier. It has to do with an individual who was up uh, for a sexual assault uh, against a 15-year-old, sexually interfering with, and uh, he's 20, she's 15. She became pregnant at the time of the alleged assault, uh, and the lower courts refused to allow this individual, the 20-year-old not being named to protect her identity as well, uh, refused to allow him to cross-examine her on other sexual activity that might have accounted for her pregnancy. She might have been promiscuous or uh, had other partners and so on and so forth, uh, whereas uh, a lower court suggested that was permissible to do and the rape shield law wouldn't necessarily apply because it was so instrumental in getting to the truth here. The Supreme Court ruled that... Uh, 
This guy was actually uh, found guilty earlier, and they upheld that conviction, the previous conviction, and uh, I guess in many ways substantiated that the rape shield law was inviolable, and it's still uh, held in this case. I mean, how was you uh, with the Center for Constitutional Freedoms? How do you see this? Well, it's a really interesting case. The rape shield laws were brought in, I think it was the, uh, in, in the early 1990s, perhaps the last 80s. And the reason for them was that previously, if a woman accused a man of rape, as it was called back in the day, not sexual assault, but um, the defense counsel would cross-examine the woman about whether she was promiscuous or whether perhaps she was a prostitute. And there was an insinuation there that if she was not of good character and if she was sexually promiscuous, then it's more likely that she's not telling the truth or it's more likely that she consented or that she was asking for it. And so basically the uh, the accuser, the woman, could be cross-examined about her sex life and whether she was sexually promiscuous. What the rape shield law did was it made that kind of questioning illegal unless it was specifically relevant to uh, the accused person being able to uh, to defend himself. Well, as was this case, right? Well, the, the reason the reason he got convicted at the end of the day and and the uh, Supreme Court of Canada restored the conviction, uh, I, I think the court was sympathetic to that the idea the accused in this case actually probably should have had the right to um, the lawyer, the accused should have been able to uh, cross-examine the the accuser, the complainant, uh, about whether she was having sex with other people, because it was specifically a, a necessary question because she claimed that she got pregnant because of this guy sexually assaulting her, and so in that context. Uh, defense counsel should have had the right to ask pretty obvious question. And, oh, well, were you maybe sexually active with other, with one other person or more other people at the same time? Um, the reason he was still convicted is that the court felt that, in spite of this, uh, the defense counsel still had a broad opportunity to cross-examine appropriately, and whether or not she got pregnant was not central to guilt or innocence. And so it was more on that basis that the conviction was was restored. All right. So uh, the defense had to do a better job and sort of uh, be uh, more adroit or deftly uh, handle the questioning there rather than going back into uh, sexual past or history. John, I appreciate it as always. Thanks for the explanations. All right. Have a good evening. And you. John Carpe is the president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.